Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, which will be available May 15th. Uh, if you can't wait that long, you can get the first book in the series, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, as a paperback and audiobook. The ebook is free to download now. Um, check out middlegradeninja.com for more information about the show and interviews with hundreds of literary agents, authors, editors, publishing professionals, folks you'd be interested in. We're going at a quick pace today because I don't want to waste a moment. Uh, I couldn't be more thrilled. Today, we are incredibly fortunate to have the author, Avi, with us. Avi, how are you today? I'm good. It's a little wintry here. Snow's on the way here in Colorado, but uh, we're warm, so we're good. We had a two-hour delay here, so that threw my morning off a little bit with my six-year-old still uh, <laughs> underfoot as we were getting ready to go. Okay, I'm good. So, um I'm terrible about summarizing other people's books and other people's biographies, especially with a biography like yours, which I would just mangle. I, I, you're the author of, I, I read at one point 70 books and at one point 80 books. How many books have you written? Uh, more than 80. So, and uh, the new book, Gold Rush Girl, I think is number 83. And that'll be published in March. And that will be followed by a new poppy book in that poppy series that comes out in uh, May. So we're busy. And you uh, you have won not just a Newberry, but you've been honored a total of three times now, or is it more than that? Uh, I've got a couple of Newberry honors. I've got the Newberry. I've got a couple of Hornbook Awards and uh, other stuff that people throw in my direction, and I'm always happy to receive. It's always good. It's a awards are gifts that you didn't know that were coming, so they're fun to get. So, you know, the door, somebody raps on the door and says, here, congratulations. I could live with that. So, <laughs> You are open to further awards that anyone wants to bestow them. I mean, you know, I'm not going to, I won't say no, okay? Uh, and that just brings me right away to a question I'm dying to ask you. When you get uh, to a point where you've written 83 books and you won a, a good number of awards, hoping to, to maybe get some more in there, but you've had a heck of a career. Nobody can say that Avi wasn't objectively a writer, a great writer uh, that, uh, that had a, a heck of a career. What keeps you writing at this point and what, what joy do you still bring from it after having so much joy? Well, I've been writing for, I hate to tell you, 60 years. Uh, it's what I do. Uh, it's part of my breathing. Uh, I get up and I work and I write. Uh, it seems to me inconceivable that I don't write. Uh, sometimes I want to slow down, but that hasn't quite happened yet. Um, but you know, I don't mean to be mundane about it, but it's my work. I get up every day and uh, I sit down in front of the computer. Where am I? What do I have to accomplish today? And I try to do it uh, and not beside the point. Uh, it's the way I make a living. <laughs> it's the way I support myself and support my family. And uh, one does have to pay the mortgage, right? And uh, that's the way it works. And so I'm a professional writer. And like, like the construction worker or the teacher or whatever, 
I go to work every day. So I try not to romanticize it. Uh, the fact that I enjoy it most days, not every day, uh, is what I do. That's how it works. So what the motivation is, I'm not so sure I require motivation. Uh, I have, for example, promised to write three more books. That is to say, there are three more contracts, if you will. And so there are deadlines. And uh, once you agree to do it, and uh, they even pay you something, uh, and then I spend it, I better do the book, right? <laughs> That's the way it works. Not very well, that makes a lot of sense. And, and yet there's this part of this, this nagging in my brain that so I read uh, a, a lot of books by a lot of authors. And I've read uh, books by authors who've already written uh, quite a few books. Um, and there's a, a I, I, I never want to disparage any author, but there can be a quality to it that this is just the job that I got up to do. And in reading Gold Rush Girl, um, available in March, uh, this is not this is not a product like if you were working construction where you've just built a house. There's there's passion in this. Um, there, there's an author who still wants to say something. So there has to be more than just it's doing the job. Well, I love telling stories and. Uh... I love telling stories by writing them. I don't sing them. I don't perform them on a stage, um, all of which is a good way to tell a story, but that's not my way. And what happens, I think, for me, when I get caught up in a story, uh, I get caught up as well with the characters. And then I get, I'm telling myself the story and I wanna know what happens so to speak, and I enjoy it. And I get involved in the characters. In a book like Gold Rush Girl, uh, my protagonist, the girl, Tori, um, I care about her. And I want to know what happens and how she feels and how she reacts to this particular rather odd situation when she goes to this bizarre place called California. And what happens to her? And I want to know when I get involved. Uh, I can't explain it all in the sense of uh, I'm very much an intuitive writer. And I just get caught up in my characters just as the way I hope you do. And I, I do believe that if the writer is not fully engaged with the characters, uh, the reader won't be. And so it's my job to... Um, care about my people, so to speak. Um, and I, I'll give you an example of that. Um, years ago, when I was writing uh, True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle, uh, the book had essentially been done. But my editor, Dick Jackson, suddenly called me up and said, uh, we skipped a scene. We, we need to go back and look at this. When Charlotte leaves the boat, the way it's written now, she just leaves. She surely needs to say goodbye to the characters, right? And I agreed, absolutely, she needed to do that. And it's maybe, so I went back and uh, got to that point in the book and started to write when she goes around and says goodbye to her characters. And as she's saying goodbye, Lord help me, the tears are coming to my eyes because I'm saying goodbye to Charlotte too. And uh, once you write the book, you can think about your characters, but you're not supposed to. I mean, that, that, 
lunacy lies that way. <laughs> you know, you create a character, they stay on the page. They're not supposed to be in your house after, they, after you write the end. But there I was uh, feeling real emotion about saying goodbye to Charlotte. And if I don't feel that emotion when I finish a book, literally write the last sentence, then I don't think I've done the job. So there's a, an emotional attachment that gets a part of the writing process. Absolutely. And so are you an author that when you're, uh, I, I make fun of myself all the time because I, I think it's uh, me. Uh, well, I don't know what the word is for it. And let's put my stuff aside. When you sit down, uh, are you laughing with the characters as well as crying? And does that happen to you frequently with every book? I think so. I don't pay attention to it myself in that sense, but I sometimes catch myself making gestures that my characters are making, that um, I'm sensing the uh, emotion, I'm sensing the moment. I think so. If you're not thoroughly engaged, you're not writing as well as you might. I, I want to know. Now, you know, I'm working on a book now, and uh, I've been working on it about, about four or five months, but only now am I really beginning to become engaged with my central character? It takes a while, you know, here I've just met you. Uh, I don't know you. I don't have any particular emotions about you. Uh, but, you know, let's meet for coffee. Let's do something together. Let's go to a movie, well, you know, et cetera. And then I'm going to start caring about you in one sense or another. And that's the same for my characters. It takes a while for me to get to know them and care for them. So lots of questions about that. Well, let's, uh, let's start with Gold Rush Girl, because uh, uh, this is the book that's available now or available in March for a esteemed audience to buy. It's the book I've just read and enjoyed. Um, so in a book like Gold Rush Girl, do you start with, OK, I'm going to set this in San Francisco in 1948, or do you start with uh, Tori? This is going to be the character that I love and know is going to have a great story. Well, I want to keep reminding you that, and who's ever paying attention to what I'm saying, if anybody is, uh, I write intuitively. I don't have a great deal of theory. I don't have a great deal of, I have process. I have a process I go through. But here's a case of uh, how did this book begin? For example, I was in San Francisco um, and uh, just visiting for a while and walking down by the bay in the area called the Embarcadero. And I saw all these flags fluttering from multiple flagpoles. And all of these flags had pictures of abandoned ships. That's all that was there. I'm thinking, what is this? I find out, and I find out the circumstances why San Francisco Bay is full of abandoned ships. And the more I read, I realize there's a story here. And then I begin to think, how, how, what do I do with this? This is fascinating. And then I begin to think how I can create a story about this fact of these hundreds of abandoned ships. If you were to pick up the book and you have the book on your hand, if you would turn to page, I don't know, 30, 40, I don't know where it is, that's where the book originally began. And then I realized I had to do a, I had to do more than that, explain how my characters came to X, Y, and Z. So uh, it gradually evolves. Uh, I don't know at what point the, uh, 
the full arc of the story uh, evolved in my head. Strictly speaking, the very ending of the book uh, didn't come into my head until I had been working on the book for a year. And, uh, you know, that in that ending, for example, was discussions with my editor. Well, we're not happy with the ending we have. Don't you think there should be something more? How would it revolve? Uh, all in the service of a story, not in the service of a lesson I'm trying to teach. I don't teach lessons. Uh, there's an old gag. If you want to send a message, use Western Union. But people don't, <laughs> people don't know what Western Union is anymore, I don't think. So um, it evolves. All my stories evolve. Um, I rewrite them endlessly. Things change. Um, I was just working on something now. My protagonist needs to do X. Well, I haven't established why he would do that. So I go back 20 pages, 30 pages, and rewrite something that would allow him to do whatever it is I need. So there's no, uh, there's no consistency in the way I create the story. Uh, what you read on page 30 might have been on page 2. What you might have read on page 1 might have been on page 60. Uh, anything in the service of a good story is my approach. So, okay, well, now, and that's that's while you're drafting that the character now needs to be this. You immediately go back and make the change, or is that once everything is done and then you make the change? Well, I constantly rewrite, even as I go. Uh, I rewrite the books I do maybe eighty times, you know, over and over and over again, and they're constant changes. Uh, hopefully, a certain amount of deepening of the character, but also structural changes. Uh, you know, well, wait a minute. Uh, He's out at night. What is the moon? Is there a full moon, a partial moon? How dark is it? I better go back and do that. Well, he did this on page seven. He's got to do this on page 80 and so forth. So it's back and forth, back and forth. There's no, not one to page 300 in a shot. It's, uh, it's more like wandering around a, a labyrinth and then at some point making the road straight. So... That's the way. It, that's the way it happens. Do you do any kind of plotting or strategizing along the way? Like, do you anything formal, like a bit of an outline, anything like that? No, I used to when I first began uh, writing novels. I, I would construct a rather crude outline, and not infrequently, as I approach the ending of a book, uh, I have to lay out a certain plot logic. But then I don't. I like. I like to be surprised. Uh, the the poet Frost, Robert Frost, um, he had a wonderful line uh, that I dearly love. He said, "If there are no surprises for the writer, there are no surprises for the reader." And I love that idea. It's a wonderful concept. Um, and so I'm open to whatever comes to me, and if I can fit it in and make it logical and work i do i do and so and this is all taking place during that same year while you're working on the book so that by the time you're at the end of the year you've got a mostly revised uh yeah. draft i hope so uh, but then you know and then it's submitted uh, usually my process is uh, when the book i think is done uh, the first person who hears the book is uh, my writer my wife and uh 
when I say here, I read it out loud. And uh, she's a very tough critic and a very good one. Uh, but reading it out loud, and I do it with a pencil in my hand, and I can make changes and adjustments even as I'm, you know, I mark the manuscript, put an X, this needs work. Uh, and then I do revisions based on that reading. Uh, and then, for example, this afternoon, I have a favorite school that I go to, uh, and I'm reading a new book. And uh, I'll go back five, six weeks, read about 25, 30 pages a week. And they're great kids for listening, fifth grade. And we'll see what they think. Maybe they'll fall asleep. I hope not. I can't imagine that they will. Um, but you're reading new stuff to them, like a comedian almost working on a, on a, on a routine ahead of time. That's right. That's right. I once saw this uh, documentary. I think it was about Seinfeld, about how he was putting together a new show. And he would uh, write his stuff. And then he would perform at this comedy club, that one. And he would, of course, uh, remember which got a laugh, which didn't. And he would keep rewriting the, the sequence that he wanted until he got his performance skit, whatever you want to call it, uh, his set, so that there was a laugh every other minute. And he would throw out the stuff that didn't and so forth and so on. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to work. Reasonable, but uh, terrifying. <laughs> you have to have some assurance if you're going out there before it's 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 done done. No, I, I mean, first of all, when you read to kids, as I do in this way, they're extremely generous. And I'm not giving them a totally crude draft. This is a book I've worked on for a year already. So it's coherent and it's, it's okay. Um, probably not the best, uh, but I can get a sense by reading it out loud. Um, I have a sort of mantra that I really believe in. Um, and that is sort of this, uh, writers don't write writing, they write reading. Writers don't write writing, they write reading. And so it's the reading and reading out loud that lets me hear the book as a reader. And it, it teaches me so much the pace of the book, even repetitious words and think phrases, even ideas. So you convert yourself into a reader and that makes an enormous difference. So knowing that your wife eventually is going to be the first person to experience the, the full story, um, do you tell her about your work before then? Oh, she knows generally. Uh, she knows uh, this book I'm reading, for example, uh, takes place in Venice during the Renaissance. Um, I dragged her there. I mean, have to go to Venice, you do, right? So... Uh, <laughs> oh, the hardships of a yeah, writing. Yeah, sure. it's rough. It's rough. <laughs> anyway, uh, so of course she knew that I was writing this book, and it's part of uh, sort of an extension of an earlier book. So yeah, but she doesn't know the specifics of it. Uh, she, I want her to experience it, but I don't like to talk about my books uh, before they're done, because I find that it intellectually locks me in if I say character. This is a book about. 
this is a book that does. I don't want to, I want to be free emotionally to go any direction I want. So by the time you get to the point of submitting a manuscript, how many times will you have typically, you think, read it out loud? Two or three. Two or three. Uh, the editor I have worked with and most influential in my life was Dick Jackson, who recently died. He used to read his submissions, people who submit stories and the ones he's working on. He would read out loud, too. So, uh, I, And I think uh, Stephen King, I read somewhere, said... If you really want to go listen to an author, understand an author, don't so much read his books as uh, listen to them. And uh, I do, I, I, there's a lot of truth to that. And so have, uh, I, I didn't see that you'd recorded an audio book. Have you thought of recording an audio book? Uh, most of my books have been recorded. Oh, but I meant with uh, you reading it. He do it. It's, uh, I've done it a little bit. It's incredibly time consuming. I remember the first time I did it, um, I don't know if you've ever recorded, uh, but you sit in a booth, you sit in, it looks, feels like a, a, a prison solitary cell and, and, and you sit there and you have headphones on and you hear voices. And I remember starting to read the book and um, all of a sudden, a voice says, stop. You didn't pronounce that word correctly. Or you dropped the and from the sentence. You know, because as I'm reading my work, I'm making adjustments to it. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the purpose of reading out loud. But this is a recording, and they're saying to the purchaser of this recording that it's absolutely verbatim text. And if I get it wrong by so much as one word, they're going to stop me and tell me to go back. It was an exhausting process. I hated it. And um, I've been asked to do more, but I don't have the time. You know, it takes two, three weeks to do a recording of a book. Um, I can't do that. So I don't. And, and the people who do it are professionals, and they do it much better than I do. So what, uh, what does your workday on average look like then? I'm an early riser, sit down, seven o'clock, 7.30, work, <laughs> and, uh, you know, get up, move the car to a better parking spot, make coffee, say hello to my wife when she gets up, um, take out the garbage, but I'm working, and I'll work till, I don't know, noon or something. Uh, I should do some exercise, not as much as I should, but I maybe go to the gym and so forth, and then come back and work. Three or four, I quit. Maybe in the evening, I'll work some more. That's what it is. Not very interesting, but that's what my day is. Oh, it'll be interesting to the uh, crowd that listens to the show. <laughs> um this is a show mostly for uh, authors and authors in training, and, and they can't get enough. It's just, uh, it's called working all the time. You know, sometimes I find it hard to do, take vacations. Uh, I think laptops are a form of uh, shackles. You take them on flights, you take them to vacation homes, and you sneak around, and you, when nobody's looking, you work some more, so... That's the way it is. So, 
Yeah, you're basically uh, living your life, but in a new location. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, and then how about reading? What are your reading habits? When are you working in reading? I read all the time. I read, uh, there are two kinds of reading. I do a lot of research, reading, particularly for the historical novels. Um, so that takes a lot of reading. But then I like to just read for pleasure, and then it could be anything. Um, history, uh, novels, no plan, no reason. Oh, you may suggest a book and I may pick it up because you suggest it or a friend's, you know, etc. But I, there's no plan to my reading. Oh, I never read that book or, oh, here's a new movie. They made a new movie of Little Women. Maybe I should reread that and see how it fits. Um, oh, here's a book about X. Uh, I, I really want to learn about that. Uh, totally erratic and totally for fun and not really reading critically. I don't enjoy that, though I have to do it sometimes, um, but just for the sheer pleasure. I like to read. I'd rather read than write any day. It certainly uh, feels easier when you're just reading. <laughs> and somebody's done the work. I like that. Yeah, it's all polished. It's great. <laughs> I confess that uh, one of my uh, stalling techniques when I'm starting a new project is to go back and read parts of the old one because I'm like, oh, it's done. It's so perfect. <laughs> There's nothing more satisfying than the work you've done. And by the same token, oh, my gosh, how am I going to ever write another book? I don't, I don't have it in me. It's exhausting. I mean, I don't know if you know it, but the, the occupational illness of writers is depression. And I think the reason is that everything you write is bad until it's good. And then they take it away from you and you have to start something else that's bad. So <laughs> it's quite a cycle. That is a good theory. I like that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> but even now, after 83 books, you sit down to a new project. You don't sit down and say, OK, three time Newberry honor. Here we go. <laughs> I, there's no presumption there's no assumption uh, oh my gosh I'm starting another one I don't know if I want to do this oh my gosh they paid me I spent it already I better do it it's <laughs> May 1st I gotta get this done um, but then you get into it and, and then you begin to go with the flow and hopefully there is a flow not always and, and then you just go forward a little bit at a time what I tell people is, uh, well, how do you write books that are so long or so forth? And I said, well, I've said this to students, for example. I say it to you. I said, could you write one page a day? Well, yeah, I guess I could. Well, do one page a day. At the end of the year, you have 365 pages. You got a book. Go for it. And there's some truth to that, right? One page a day. I guess we can all do that. Uh, On my best days, even too. <laughs> I can relate. And then um, something else I, I, I'm desperate to ask you is when you get to 83 books um, and, and will be more uh, beyond and above, when you, when you have so many universes that you've created, so many characters that you spent so much time with, do you still feel all of them with you not all the time but do you still remember them think of them or do they go into the past um worse i forget them uh, 
I'm visiting a school. I'm doing a Skype with the school. They're reading the book I wrote 20 years ago. And they say, on page 16, you said. And I'm thinking, did I? I don't remember that. Or they'll say, this character, how did, who, where'd you get the idea? For? And I'm not even remembering the character. So it takes me a while to, wait a minute, let's, that's the book I wrote. Then uh, I'm trying to remember. And sometimes I'll say to a student, which is true, believe it or not, you know this book better than I do because you just read it. I haven't read it in 20 years. And uh, that happens. And they give me this sort of baffled look. How could you forget? But you do. <laughs> I do. I really do. And um, since you're writing in intuitively when you're starting a new project um, and you've, you've already signed a, some contract of some form, spent the money, so it's definitely going to happen. How much of that uh, determines the parameters of what you're going to write? How much do you have down for someone to purchase before you get going? Okay. Um, I'll give you an example. <laughs> And please don't think I'm bragging or something, but uh, I was talking to the editor who um, did Gold Rush Girl. And a friend of mine read the book and uh, said, I can't wait for the sequel. End of the book, uh, you've read it. The kids go off at the end, right? He said, I want to know what happens to them. I hadn't even thought about that. And uh, so I was having some communication with the editor and um, Actually, she was saying, we just got, the book has just come in bound. I'm sending you a copy. It looks really good. Let me know what you think about it. So I said, okay, happy to. Oh, by the way, do you want a sequel? She writes back, we're doing all this by email. Yeah, I think I would. What would it be about? Well, tell us what happened to the kids. I need more than that before I go to my publisher. Can you give me a synopsis of the story? Okay. So I sit down and write. And 15 minutes later, I send it to her. She said, oh, that sounds good. Uh, does it have a title? I don't know. Well, I need one. Um, I give her a title. Oh, good. You could use that. Fine. Let me, let me, I'll get back to you in a couple of weeks and see if we want to do this. Boom. There you go. Have I thought out the story? <laughs> no. Do I know the general idea? Yes. I'm thinking, well, if I do that, I'm going to have to move to California for a month or two to write this book. But I mean, this is all within 10, 15 minutes of talk. That's not exactly careful planning of my life, is it? So <laughs> much less of a book. But it's working out. <laughs> well, you know, on the other hand, I'm working on a book and, and uh, I did think it out carefully. I submitted it to a publisher and they said, well, we're sort of interested, but only if you told the story this way, which was not a way I wanted to work. So I just took it to another publisher and she was editor and she was intrigued. Well, how would you deal with this issue? I told her, she said, okay, let me think about it. And that one took a lot of discussion because it's a complicated subject, but sometimes more, sometimes less. Some ideas are simple. Some ideas are very complicated. Do you have any sense about what 
attracts you to a particular project versus another? It's a perfectly valid question of which I have not a valid answer. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I have to, something has to be intriguing about it. The worst, the worst, Robert, is when you agree to a book and then you're called upon to actually produce it two years later and you're thinking, what in the world made me interested in this? <laughs> that happens. That's no fun. Uh, but usually, uh, I don't know, there's a story that I just think would be fun, that would be interesting to tell. Uh, I don't think it's more than that. Um, the idea of the story is what attracts me, but that's not the story. Um, you know, one of the questions that people often ask, you're a writer, they'll use this word, they'll say, what inspired you to do such and such a thing? They use that word inspire. And I'd like to point out to folks that the word inspire is not, as it's come to mean, sort of the finger of God touching your brain. When you inspired, you have, it really means putting life into something. So to me, to be inspired is to have an idea which is easy, but then I have to bring it to life. That's what inspiration is all about. And that's my job as a writer, to do exactly that. And uh, sometimes I do it better than other times. Uh, but that's, that's the work, that's the job of the writer, to give life, not to, to the idea. It's not the idea that's crucial, it's the life that engages with people. I've definitely got to come back. You know, you know, unpack that just a little bit for me, because I'm getting too far ahead of myself. I've got three more questions for you on the, on the back of what you said. What, what, what does that mean? It's the life that inspires the word. How does that show itself? My readers have to care. You know, I, I, after many years, um, people have said, what makes children's books different than adult books? And I've come up with an answer. I don't know if other people have, but it's a little different than I might have said 20 years ago. I think it's the way kids read books that constitute children's books. They are so fully absorbed in a book they're so much engaged with it. They take the experience of the book and make it their own. And I think adults can do that and sometimes do that. But I think kids read in this all-absorbing way. Uh, I'll tell you a story about this that with one of my own kids that um, I love to tell because it's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, he, I don't know how old he was, seven or eight, and this, we were, I used to read to my kids all the time. And I was reading uh, the Nesbitt book, The Would-Be Goods. And uh, this is a story, if you don't know it, about uh, Edwardian kids written at that time. Uh, it's a family. The mother has died. The father tries to raise his five kids. But uh, these kids try to take over their lives and they get into mischief. I mean, it's it's fun, fun book. And there was one character named Oswald, who uh, the oldest, but he was always getting into trouble. I mean, you can see the plot of this book, not not terribly deep and not terribly important. But anyway, 
I was reading this to my son, and he loved it. He loved it. And by this time, I was writing, and he had seen that I was getting letters from kids. And he says to me one night after we finished the reading, he said, Dad, he said, um, I really like this book. I said, can I, can I write to the author? And I said, you know, Kevin, I, it's his name. I said, that's a great idea, but unfortunately she died some time ago. He sat bolt up in his bed. He said, that's impossible. What do you mean? He said, she knows so much about me. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I mean, the characters in the book had nothing that I saw about him. These Edwardian English kids. We're in the middle of Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania. But he identified so much. This was about him. And I thought, what an extraordinary gift this writer had that she leaped across the ages, so to speak, and he made this book about him. I loved that. I absolutely loved that. And, and I think that's the way kids read at their best. And uh, that's different. And what I hope is that my readers care. I, when they read The Gold Rush Girl, I want them to care about the girl. Is she going to succeed in doing what she has to do? She wants to go to California. How is she going to get to California? She hates her life on the East Coast. I hate that life on the East Coast. I want them to be right there with her and take the same journey that she does. And if I do, if I do that, then I've succeeded. If they don't come along with her, I haven't. It's as simple as that. Have you got some tried and true means to get readers to care about your characters? I have to care. If I don't care, they won't care. And uh, I don't have a method. I just have the intuition, this works, this doesn't. And uh, I'm a totally untheoretical writer, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> no, I want you to tell me the secret. <laughs> the secret is there's no secret. Uh, and uh, something else I want to touch on. You mentioned that uh, some writers, when they get inspiration, talk about the, the finger of God touches them. I'm convinced part of the reason I didn't give up my uh, cigarette habit uh, sooner than I should have, or better yet, never started, uh, was because I once read an Atlas Shrugged, which is a terrible book. Don't read it. Uh, but Ayn Rand described, uh, Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand uh, described one of the characters as having the flicker of inspiration at the tip of the cigarette, literally at the tip of their finger representing the inspiration in their brain. I'm like, oh, I, I want to be that. <laughs> that sounds great. A lot of people read that book and a lot of people live by that book. Whatever it is. Yes, just if some of them hadn't been in control of so many of our economic policies, yeah. <laughs> that would have been so That's for sure. Uh, but what I wanted to ask you about is um, we're talking about this very practical. It's, it's a job that must be done. Uh, you sit down, you do it, as is, as is comfortable for you. you, you're writing intuitively, but there's, is there any woo? Uh, there's a lot of woo that comes up on this show sometimes when authors will talk about characters doing things that uh, on their own, when the magic starts to line up and, and things, uh, I don't know, cosmically rhyme. I'm describing it poorly. Have you encountered this? 
Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's magic. I, I think if you've done your job, there's an inherent reality in the show, in, in the character. Uh, and if you've done your job properly, they won't do X because their personality and their character and their circumstance requires them to do Y. Um, years ago, I think I was doing some sort of workshop. And uh, this young man, this was high school students. And he said, uh, all I want to do is write hunting stories. <laughs> That's what he said to me. He said, but they're all the same. I don't know how to change them. I said, well, have you ever thought about writing the story from the point of view of the creature that's being hunted? And he stopped dead. And he said, whoa, I never thought of that. <laughs> he's writing the stories about people killing these creatures, and he's never thought about what the creatures feel about being killed. And it, it sort of was an epiphany for him that he realized that he had to think about it the other way. So when you think about a character, um, you have to create... One of the things that I think is inherent in all good writing is something that I don't think is discussed very often, and that's logic, which is to say, character, a story can't do X until Y has been done or the other way around, as the case may be, you have to build a certain reality into it. Uh, I knew a very smart editor who once said, uh, you can't write, <laughs> when you write fantasy, you have to write it as if it's historical. That is to say, there's certain rules, there's certain uh, concepts that have to be obeyed. Otherwise, the fantasy doesn't work. Then it's just a hodgepodge of things happening. And I thought that was very smart. But I think it's true about all, all fiction. There's an inherent logic, or should be, in the story, so that it flows logically. You can be surprised, but it has to come out of that reality that you created. And that's the job. That's what you have to do. Going back to this, um, and, and, this, uh, and I don't want to harp on this all day, but this idea of an intuitive writer strikes me uh, because uh, it's it's close to how I work, but not quite. I like uh, I like a little bit of planning. I get nervous if I don't know where I'm uh, going entirely. Um, as you're dealing with these historical novels, with um, you have to be you know true to history as well as true to your characters, true to their story. Um, are you keeping notes along the way? Uh, of things you need to know to keep straight to finish the book, or you, how, how are you keeping everything straight? I think one of the great uh, requirements of a writer is a good memory. I don't think people talk about that. I don't know if you develop a memory, I guess you can. But you have to remember people, you have to remember circumstance, you have to remember facts, you have to remember your own book. Yeah. yeah, let me read you something. This is, I'm going to read you a, a paragraph, okay, of, of something I'm working on now. And this is something that takes place in the year 1774 
in Boston. And I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to explain to you. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay. The night's sultry heat would have kept me awake in any case, but I was so excited, I'm not sure I ever slept. Long before dawn, I crept out of our silent Hog Alley house. Happily, there was almost a full moon in a cloudless sky. Its light enabled me to make my way along deserted Newbury, Marlborough, and Cornhill streets before heading out along the Long Wharf. When I reached the end, I found, to my delight, some 300 regular soldiers lined up. They were wearing short red jackets and black leather caps, which bore their regimental number, which proclaimed them the 38th foot. Each one carried a musket, as well as a hatchet, powder horn, and bullet pouch attached to belt or sash. A few held lit lanterns. I watched as new flints were distributed by their officers, a sure sign that some military action was afoot. Under strict discipline, there was no talk among the soldiers. When I considered their faces, I saw no emotion. In the water below, clustered around the wharf, were 13 long rowboats, Royal Navy seamen at the oars. Okay, that's the moment. Let's go back. This is the stuff that's been researched. That it was hot. That there was a full moon. That the soldiers were dressed in a certain way and carried certain implements. That they were carrying lanterns. That new flints were distributed to them. That there were 13 long boats and that royal seamen were at the oars of these boats. None of that did I make up. All of that is fact that I've researched. Okay. Now stop and think. All I had to do was thread <laughs> those facts together into a narrative moment, right? Sure. At the same time, not hitting you over the head with the fact that they're facts. I think distributing new flints that suggest the military action is taking place becomes a dynamic part of the story. But it's also true. That's what happened. And knowing that and remembering that from my research, and by the way, I, I can tell, you can go on the internet and get moon calendars any day of any year. I know what the moon was. And I can absorb that. Is that important to the reader, that I get the fact that there's a full moon as opposed to a half moon? No, but it helps me imagine, tell the story. But it's all researched. That's the way I work these things. Make any sense? Does it? it does. So how much research are you doing? Do you spend a, a period of time when like, okay, I've got San Francisco, 1849. Let's learn everything that we can about that ahead of time. When do you do the research? I was writing this thing just this morning. That's why I happened to have the page there. And I suddenly said, well, what kind of moonlight was? So I checked my moon chart for September 1, 1774. It's a full moon. That's good to know because it makes, makes, makes their movements easier to, to relate. And for all I know, I mean, since this is based on something that really happened, maybe they chose that day because there was a full moon, right? Okay. Could be. I don't know. But so there it is. I can use that. 
and it gives it a sort of spooky feel and all the rest of that. So do you sit down and say, okay, did you know ahead of time that this is going to be the scene and so you've already checked the moon? Or do you sit down, write part of the sentence and stop? These soldiers have to go somewhere. So now it becomes my job to effectively describe how that works. And, but at the same time, trying to make it so it's narratively interesting and maybe a little suspenseful and spooky. And, um, and it helps that it's hot. Turned out to be a hot Boston summer. Use it. Use it. Why not? Makes all the sense in the world to me. So when um, when you're going back through and, and, and you're revising and you're writing historical fiction for young adults and you want to make sure that they're engaged in the story and not checking out of a history lesson, what's the balance and when can you find that about how to stay true to, to what you want to present historically, but then make sure that the narrative is still moving, that you're not getting bogged down on, on, on any details? Well, sometimes the details are interesting. I mean, uh, the fact that this particular kind of soldier, British soldier, uh, had a hatchet never would have occurred to me. Uh, but I, th- I think kids would be interested. I mean, just... I don't think they often see a soldier or think of a soldier carrying a hatchet, but um, as, as we'll see, it, it's part of the story and they need those hatchets. So I got to mention that. And I think it's interesting. So I hope it is. But it's my job to make it interesting, to make it reasonable and, in, you know, and full of life. I don't know. I'm going to find the secret before we're done. I know it. <laughs> What's the secret? What do you think? I don't know. I don't. I haven't written 83 books. You know. <laughs> but, I mean, what's the effect of the secret? Maybe that... What, what do you... Uh, the secret of what? Uh, the secret of uh, a writing career that is successful, a, a secret of writing 83 novels and still being able to produce uh, Gold Rush Girl, which is engaging, interesting throughout. And maybe I'm just thinking about it too hard. It's entirely possible. Um, if, I can't, if I can't do it well, then I'm not going to be allowed to do it. Does that work? I think that makes 100% sense. Yes, sir. (laughs) I'm sorry, Avi, you've had it. You've had your run. (laughs) I think you should start writing greeting cards. No more novels. Something else I wanted to ask you about language, Um, and I I haven't read the the new one, obviously. Uh, I think that might be, if you just wrote it this morning, that might be the world premiere of that passage to, to everywhere. That's an exclusive here at middlegradeninja.com. Our folks, you heard it. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about the... Well, go ahead. The language? Uh-huh. Language is really very, very complex when you're writing historical novels. Um, you have to make um, a decision, and that's where a conscious decision is made. Gold Rush Girl, uh, you have this bright girl... And we learn very on that reading is very important to her. And she becomes uh, totally immersed, in particular, to the book uh, Jane Eyre. And so you make a conscious decision, at least I do, 
she's got to sound something like Jane Eyre. Otherwise, we don't believe that she was so influenced by this book, right? Okay. But, and so I'm going to write in some ways, and, and since I read a lot and I read a lot of classics, um, I'm concerned that some of the language, some of the vocabulary is going to come out of that period of time that she exists. The best example I can give of that is, is my Newbery book, Crispin. This takes place in the 14th century. The English that was spoken then is Chaucerian English, what's called Middle English. I can't read it. Interestingly enough, when you hear it, you can hear it, the English in it, but it's hard to read. And I certainly can't pronounce it the way it was. But it's the hearing of it and listening to Chaucer and 14th century English and other poets that gave me the clue to that. It was written in a certain poetic form, iambic pentameters. And I said to myself, what if I wrote the book Crispin in verse? That would effectively give me a sound of English that's not modern. I mentioned this to my agent, and she was horrified. She said, the book will be <laughs> 900 pages. But I did write it in verse. It just doesn't look it. But if you read it out loud, the language has a cadence to it. It's written in iambic pentameter. It doesn't, nobody ever says that to me, but it's there. And then I made sure to use certain words that I could justify in context that gave it a somewhat antique flavor. So between the rhythm of the language and the occasional antique words, it sounded different. And I stress the word sounded. And I think it gives that book a certain energy. And that's an example of trying to write historical fiction in such a way that my readers have a sense that it's historic. I don't do that with every book, but it certainly was true of Crispin and uh, is true of Gold Rush Girl. And something else I, I noticed as I was going is even though um, the, the language is occasionally uh, not words that you know we're, we're, we're familiar with encountering in, in fiction at present time, um, there's still a lot of white space uh, on, the, on the page, which I love to see in middle grade, which is you're keeping your paragraph short, easy to digest. Uh, are you very conscious of that? And follow up to that, when is it a good time to, when do you know you should end the chapter? Because I notice you also chapter frequently to give me that, that feeling of, look how, fa how, how fast I'm progressing. Uh, I like to write in short chapters. I just do. Uh, when I began to think about seriously becoming a writer, I wanted to be a playwright. And uh, what I was writing for the first uh, 10 years of my writing life were plays, bad plays, but plays nonetheless. And um, one of my editors said to me, um, you've never stopped writing plays. You still write plays. And my books are indeed full of dialogue. And as you said, a lot of white space on the page. Um, 
But I think that playwriting uh, really has influenced my writing style, if I have a style, in which uh, there's a lot of dialogue, um, and there's, uh, but the descriptive passages uh, tend to be brief and very uh, sharp in the sense that uh, trying to deliberately, just like I read to you, evoke a very specific moment and place. Um, so I, I, I think that's a kind of writing that I do, uh, that I happen to like myself. It's the kind of books I like to read. I like, uh, I like books with a lot of dialogue in it. I just do. Um, and, and the short chapters, uh, when I was learning to be a bad playwright, <laughs> I, uh, there was a whole style of acting and theater uh, that emphasized uh, in theatrical jargon was called beats, B-E-A-T-S, the beats of the story. And I think that got into the, my writing, and I tend to write that way. So there are short scenes, short chapters, if you will, that carry the book forward in that way. And uh, I think it helps young readers to know, uh, I don't know how they read these uh, books with long chapters, I would think they get weary of them, but uh, I like the short chapters, just what I like. So I don't know. If yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, of short chapters. I'm a big fan of, of white space. I'm a big fan of, of that feeling of I've, I've read this book and faster than I thought I would. Right. I must be having a good time. <laughs> That's exactly right. So is a, the longest book I wrote was a book called Beyond the Western Sea. It's really in two volumes. It should have been one. It's about 800 pages, 750 pages. And I remember discussing with my editor that I wanted the chapters short. I wanted it to be sort of like salted peanuts. Okay, I'll read this one chapter. Let me look ahead. Oh, it's only three more pages. I could do that. And then you read that. Oh, that one's short too. I'll read that and keep going. And so it's big. It's long. But you just want to keep rushing forward and feeding yourself one more chapter. Makes all the sense in the world. You're also very good about ending every chapter with some sort of uh, question or something that makes me, propels me on and makes me want to read the next chapter. How conscious of that and when does that come into play? Is that something you go back through after on a revision and start adding that or? No, I'm, I'm, well, to some degree. The other big influence in my life as a writer is something that I have by virtue of my age. And that is when I was a kid, I used to listen to the radio all the time. And uh, there were a lot of wonderful, no, dreadful, but wonderful to me, uh, shows for, for kids. And they were serial suspense stories. The Lone Ranger, Sergeant Yukon, uh, Jack Armstrong, Superman, etc. I adored them. And uh, in fact, one of my books called, was called Who Was That Mass Man Anyway? About kids who listen to the radio. And anyway, the point is that, uh, again, it was a style of storytelling that was uh, suspenseful. Let's call it what it is sometimes, manipulative, uh, <laughs> in terms of storytelling technique. And I, I like that. I enjoy that. I enjoy reading that. And it's fun to write. 
Well, aren't I coming to you, hoping that you're going to manipulate me and make me uh, feel some kind of way when I when I'm reading your book? I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, I, I, I think you know, suspense. You have to care. You have to get the reader to care. And the fundamental caring is what happens. What happens next? And if you can get people hooked on that, they're going to read your book. I remember once getting a letter from a kid. She said, uh, I read your book, True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle. It was boring at first, but by page two, it really got good. <laughs> Ruthless. <laughs> Whoa. Over 83 books. Do you have a favorite reader reaction to something that you've written? Once again, it's the same book. This girl wrote to me. She said, Dear Avi, I've read your book, True Confessions, Charlotte. I've read it 16 times. My mother says, I can't read it anymore. Would you please write a sequel so I can have another book to read? <laughs> that was sweet. That is amazing. That's a, that's a good reader reaction. On the other hand, I, I remember another book. I mean, I think I just alluded to this long book called Beyond the Western Sea. She said, Dear Avi, I hate you. I hate you. You killed my favorite character. There was no reason to kill him. I hate you. I will never read another book of yours again. I will tell all my friends never to read your books. I hate you. Why did you kill him? Your friend. And then she's... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but she cared, right? How did you respond to that? Well, I said, I'm sorry. I hope you do read my books. And then I said, you know, in books, characters die. And then I suggested some, you know, Bridge to Terabithia, Charlotte's Web. I mean, sometimes characters die and they're still good books and you don't have to hate the writers. But I never heard from her again, so maybe she stayed with her vow never to read another book of mine. But she cared, so I did my job there, didn't I? Well, I know in my youth I made some vows like that similar, and then the author would have a new book come out. and like, oh, well, maybe just a little. Okay, maybe I'll finish it. <laughs> there you go. So. Um, you had mentioned about, you know, one more nerdy question about the language, and then I'm going to follow up with you about California. But uh, I noticed that there are um, not a lot, but fairly consistent uh, use of italicies, uh, especially in dialogue for emphasis, I assume, on, on what a character might be saying. When do you decide which words in dialogue are appropriate to put into italicies? And is there such a thing as too many italicies? The answer is yes, they can be. Uh... I think it comes about because I'm hearing the books, not seeing them. Um, as I mentioned, I like to read them out loud. I would like them to be read out loud. And so I'm emphasizing certain words from a speech point of view. And that's why I do that. And maybe I do it in excess, I don't know. No, I'm going to play this clip for my uh, critique group because they accused me of doing that too many times. So now I have this this book I can wave at them and say, no, Avi, <laughs> Avi's a great writer and Avi uses the I would like that book to be read out loud. And I think for the reader, I often 
you know, I visit schools and so forth. Sometimes teachers say to me, you know, well, how can I get kids to write better? And I say to them, you should be reading books out loud to your kids. The best way to teach reading is to read out loud. Like take voice lessons, learn how to be a good reader. Learn to read what you love. If the book is sad, don't forget to cry. If it's funny, laugh. Your, your kids will love you for it. If you emote about the books you read, but read them out loud. It's the most powerful way to teach reading and writing that there is. Reading out loud. It's, uh, I recently, well, earlier this year, started substitute teaching uh, on uh, when I can, uh, as often as I get there. And, and one of the things I'm always key to do is figure out where the teachers left me room, that we're going to sit down with the book, not mine, somebody else's book. And uh, let's see how you react to this. Do you hear it the way I hear it? How much, how much is there for you? And right. so, yeah. As a substitute teacher, I would think you'd have a, a package of short stories in your hip pocket that you could always read. Well, I've always got at least two books on my person, so I can always whip something out <laughs> and make sure that we're going to enjoy at least a part of it. Absolutely. Very powerful. Very powerful. Especially if it's a book that's done really well and I just didn't personally care for it. I'm like, what am I missing here? Show me. You well, you laugh, you react, and then I'll understand. <laughs> not all good books are good books to read out loud. It, it's a, we could discuss that at some point, but... Uh, and some poorer books are wonderful to read out loud. So um, you have to make a distinction. Anyway. Well, no, I think that might be instructive. What, uh, what, what are the qualities of a book that isn't good to read out loud? It has to do in part with the language that it's, there's a sense of immediacy. So kids are not stumbling. What did he say? What did you say? Um, a lot of movement going forward, a lot of uh, certain amount of energy in the book. Uh, and if you have characters that have distinguished, distinguishing ways of talking, um, there's a character in some of my books, uh, the Poppy series, Aerith the Porcupine, who speaks he swears all the time, and he, he, he doesn't say real swear words. He makes them up, but it's all alliterative, and kids love it because it's nonsense, but it's funny at the same time, and uh, teachers tell me they love to read it out loud because the kids laugh, and uh, that's good material to, to read out loud. Are you? I know you used to be a, a librarian. Are you very good about seeking out librarians, teachers, folks that that uh, promote books and, and reading for children to to get information from them? No, but in the nature of what I do, when I visit schools and the very selective nature of the schools that I'm working with, means that I'm meeting teachers and meeting librarians who are interested in what I do, which is right for kids. Uh, you know, I've been to schools where I remember a school a teacher invited me and it was all set up and so forth. And I said something about the library. She said, we don't go there. The librarian there doesn't like the room to be messed up. So she didn't want to have any part of this. Of this, what value is that? <laughs> it's incredible to me. But, you know, I've been to a school in which 
I was told the principal doesn't want any teacher to be reading out loud because she thinks the students are doing nothing when the teacher is reading out loud. I mean, you meet some strange things in schools, but those are a couple of them. Um, here I'm scandalized. That's a terrible approach. <laughs> recently at a gathering and a librarian came up to me. He was in near tears. He said, my principal is ripping out the library. He thinks she thinks we don't need it anymore. If kids want a book, they'll just ask you and you'll get it from another school. We're just going to have computers in the library. <laughs> Well, that's really depressing. So we'll, <laughs> we'll move on. I know lots of great librarians. I know lots of passionate teachers. I know that's not everywhere, but I'm sad to hear that that's happening somewhere. Yes, it is. Well, what uh, what does a great school visit look like? If Avi comes to my school, what can I look forward to experiencing? And when do you know you've had a good school visit? Well, I do less in person. I do a lot. I do twenty, thirty Skypes a year. Uh, they're very easy to arrange, and I live in such a remote area. It saves time, money, et cetera. Um, a good school visit has a lot to do, a great deal to do, with the teacher who organizes it. Uh, have they read the books? That sounds like obvious, but it's not. <laughs> Sometimes it's not. Have they discussed what they want? To find out, the more, if they read one book, the discussion is going to be fairly narrow. If they've read 10 books and different kids have different favorites, you can get into a real chat with them. I like to share with them a couple of things that, uh, about my life. You know, there's the obvious things. Where do I live? Do I have kids? Married? All that stuff. But I also was not a very good student. I flunked out of one high school. I almost flunked out of another. I, I was required to have tutoring when I was in high school and so forth. And um, I have some of my high school papers, which are marked up by teachers who are pretty caustic and uh, critical of my writing. And I share that with students. And uh, it has a big impression on them uh, because I was not always a good writer. And uh, they don't think of themselves as particularly good writers. You meet occasionally a, a kid who thinks they're good, but for the most part, they don't. That's because they aren't. <laughs> they're just learning. <laughs> so to see in me who I come before them as a representative of a good writer, because that's why I'm there, to know that I was not always a good writer is a very important message to bring to young people. So we discuss that, and I show them examples of all that. And uh, if we have a good time, I like to joke around with students, laugh, listen to their stories. I don't want it to be just about myself. Um, you know, talk to some kids just yesterday. Um, did you always want to be a writer? No, I wanted to be an airplane pilot when I was a kid, and. Well, what do you want to be, you know? And uh, you get to talk about that and share ideas and, and make them feel that I'm interested in them as well as the other way around. That's very important, I think. Uh, well, you need characters for books. I imagine you probably are interested in them. 
I am. I like people. I like kids a lot. And uh, they're fun. And, uh, you know, I was, I was in Florida last week, and I was in this school which had a great number of Hispanic kids. And um, after the class was over, this girl came up to me and, I don't know, something about, I said, uh, she, she had asked some questions and I said, I, it sounds to me like you would like to be a writer. And she said, yeah, I would. I said, what would you like to write about? And she outlined this wonderful plot of a book. She said, you know, I want to have this idea about a story about a family of kids and their mother gets deported back to their country and how the kids try to track her down. <laughs> what a great story, right? It's all right there. It's right there. And I said, I hope you write it. It's a wonderful idea for a story. Off she went. Is she going to write it? I don't know, but she's thinking about it. She's thinking about the story that constitutes her life, probably, or lives of people that she knows. Uh, I thought that was pretty amazing. I love yeah, I mean, I, if you're listening, uh, little girl, please write write that story. <laughs> you know, and I'll never see her again. So it's um, years ago when I was working as a librarian, I got this letter from this girl. She was 11, 12, and um, they were amazing letters. They were beautifully written literary and um, I don't usually encourage um, kids to enter into a correspondence with me but I was fascinated who was this person how could she be writing this way and so I encouraged us and I kept getting letters we went back and forth and she wrote anyway the short of it is all of a sudden it turns out I was working in this library in New Jersey that she and her family moved within a few miles of where my library was and I did something that you're not supposed to do. I said, I'd love to meet you. If it's okay with your parents, uh, have them drive you down to this library. I'd like to meet you. So it was arranged. And I met this sweet, incredibly shy young lady. And her story was that her parents uh, sort of, for want of a better term, sort of hippie types, had moved to Europe and she was homeschooled if she was schooled at all. But her education seemed to be she would go wherever they would go. She would search out an American library. In those days they used to be. And she would get English language books and she would read them. She was her, th this great skill of letter writing derived entirely from reading books. Anyway, we talked and it was she was too shy and in and, and truth to tell she wasn't that interesting she, you know, <laughs> i mean she was perfectly nice but she wasn't had this vivacity that she had in these letters anyway we continued some correspondence and her family then settled in ohio and she started to go to high school and her letters changed they became full of cliches <laughs> They, they became uh, uh, dull and uninteresting, and then she faded away. Um, 
and it, she was getting an education, but it was killing her skill as a writer. <laughs> it was so sad, and and yet perfectly ordinary and, and believable. And uh, and then the other day, I found these letters, you know, 20, 25 years ago, and I wondered, did she become a writer? And, you know, on the internet, I looked up her name. Now, of course, she could have changed her name or something in 25 years. There's no record of her ever. I don't know what happened to her. Anyway, there's a little bit of Tory in her who gets her language and her vivacity from reading books. And uh, I guess I was thinking of her a little bit in that context. Well, follow up, quick edit etiquette question uh because i get this and i'm just a blogger uh podcast guy you must get this uh times a million people adults and children who want to write with you and correspond with you on a regular basis and say please read my rough draft please give me writing advice and if you did all of that i imagine you you wouldn't be able to find time to write your next book so how do you politely decline and, and, and cut those things short when you're not interested i have some stuff on my own website about tips for writing and i refer people to that. But actually, I get relatively few of that occasional. I don't like to read kids' letters, uh, manuscripts, for, and I tell teachers this. There's a very, very specific reason. Um, let's say the work is dreadful, but it's the first thing the kid has ever really sat down to write. Why would I want to criticize that? It would be horrible and destructive, right? On the other hand, maybe this is a kid who thinks very well of herself, himself, and thinks this, she's, he is a wonderful writer. Why bust the bubble if it's the best that they can do? So I don't see, without knowing the kid, knowing the circumstance, the whole person, as a teacher would, uh, I don't see any value in my responding to, to stuff. So I don't say that to kids who send me stuff. I simply say, I have to finish a book. I have no time to do this. So that's how I answer it. Seems pretty bulletproof to me. Right. Uh, obviously, we all want the next hobby book. So <laughs> you're going to have to take one for the team and <laughs> not get your correspondence uh, taken care of. Um, follow up to something you said before, and I'm, I'm watching our time, and I know it's flying by, and I never, I want to end while we're still having fun. I don't want to exhaust you, um, so I can start to think about uh, moving this toward a, a conclusion, if you'd like. Uh, but uh, something I want to follow up with you had said earlier is if, one, will there be a gold rush girl, too? Uh, and if so, why would it be important for you to live in California while you were writing at least a portion of it? I have a good imagination in a lot of things. My sense of, of physical geography is not so great. In other words, if there's a sequel to Gold Rush Girl and they go off into the uh, gold digging territory, I want to see that. Uh, I, I think I mentioned I wrote a book about Venice. No way you can write that book without visiting Venice because it's such a strange place beautiful place, but very, very unusual. So I like to, if the physical place is unusual, 
I like to visit it. I like to be there. Um, I don't know what the gold digging territory of California was like. It's probably very different than it was then, but I would need to visit it. Uh, when I wrote the Crispin books, uh, the second book in the series takes place in France. Again, somebody had to do the research, so we went to France. Break my heart. Uh. <laughs> right. But it was wonderful because we went to the area where the story took place, and it's full of <clears throat> medieval castles and uh, moats and things that I could use in the story and did. And uh, I wouldn't have been able to do that unless I had visited. So uh, that's important to me. But it's, it, it, it's a funny way. It's a weakness of my writing. But I accept it, and as as I say, I have to go to these places, and going to California for a couple of weeks and wandering in the old gold-digging areas uh, wouldn't be the worst thing that happened to me. Why, 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 why would that be a weakness? Well, I want to get it right, you know. Um, here, I, I, I'm, I've alluded to that. I read you a section of a book that takes place in Boston in 1774, right here in the floor is a, a map of Boston in 1775. Uh, I can follow the story street by street. And uh, Boston is very different than it was then. Uh, but I want to know how long it takes to go from here to there. And uh, I like to have maps when I work on books in a specific place. So, And I don't want that to be my imagination. You know, I... I I alluded to, you probably didn't necessarily catch it, but this kid is wandering around on something that's called a long wharf. This was the biggest wharf in Boston, revolutionary time. It was a third of a mile long, and it went out into the bay. And why is that important? Well, because it's big, it's long. It means you can see things that you might not otherwise. And uh, it's useful to know, to write the story. So it's not just the name, long wharf. How long is it? Well, it's a third of a mile long. That's pretty big. I'm always wondering uh, what the um, oh, what the what the, the where the leap of imagination comes in. For example, I've got a, an author, Mike Mullen. There you go. Shout out on the Avi podcast to Mike Mullen, uh, who who wrote a book in which the characters are desperate. They're in the apocalypse, so they have to eat cat food. And Mike was not content with just saying they ate cat food. He actually sat down and ate cat food, so they knew he could describe the taste correctly. Yeah. Do you do a lot of that? And where you draw the line of, I have enough information, I can imagine it for the reader? Um, trying to think of strange things I've done to write a book. Um, you know, one of the things about doing research, and the fact that I was a librarian for many years, and actually taught students how to do research. Um, it's amazing, amazing what people have written about. Um, it's almost, I, you can't think of a topic in which you cannot find a book about. An example. Uh, I wrote a book some years ago called um, um, City of Orphans, and it deals with the uh, family, families of immigrants at the end of the 19th century in New York City. 
great poverty, great hurly burly life, etc. And there's a point, and and this particular family is Danish, Danish immigrants. And at one point, there's a, a a moment of sadness for the father, and I want him to sing a song. And I found. It's called, this was a book, a dissertation. I mean, you, people write dissertations about the oddest thing. This was, it's almost embarrassing to say what the title of this book was. Songs of Danish, Danish immigrants when they came to America. Very explicit. You know what you're getting with that book. <laughs> I find this book, you know, I mean, who would think? Uh, and I plucked out a sad song, right? And it was given Danish and English, and so I could put it in the book, but it's nothing I could have invented. I once found a book that I loved it so much that I thought I should write a book about it. I didn't, but it was, it was something called slang, 14th century slang of... Uh, people who lived on the Thames River in the 14th century, England. <laughs> it had all this wonderful slang in it. And I thought, I have to write a book with this stuff. It's so incredible. I didn't, but <laughs> it's nothing I When I was writing Crispin, he's running through a forest and I'm thinking, well, what kind of trees in a medieval English forest? Found the book. Medieval forests of England. <laughs> now, granted that I used to be a librarian, I know how to find this stuff. But any, I could teach anyone how to do it. it, it but when you find that stuff, I found books on medieval swear words. Obviously, medieval food, illnesses. It's nothing you can't find out. Nothing, nothing. You must take great pleasure on what a professor of mine called the glory of knowledge and, and knowing as much as you can about everything. I have a reputation for sprouting totally irrelevant facts at dinner tables. <laughs> you know that. People look at me, what's that have to do with what we're talking about? Nothing, it just popped into my head, so. <laughs> If I ever get the opportunity, I'm going to make sure I sit on your side of the table. I'm going to hear some of these sit interesting things. <laughs> roll your eyes when I come out with some totally irrelevant fact. So. Well, let's. Uh, I, 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 I could talk to you all day. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure, and I so appreciate you you're making the time to do this. Why don't uh, I ask you two more questions, and, and we'll call it a day so that you we, we, we end while everything is still fun and we're having a good time before it becomes exhausting. It's not exhausting. You asked me and uh, you, you suggested some questions you might want to uh, answer. And, and then you said something about the name, my name. Uh, oh, yes. How did it come? Why do I drop the last name and so forth and so on? And uh, that's something that's relevant. Um, first of all, my first name really is Edward. Uh, but I have a twin sister. And uh, when we began to talk, for whatever reasons, there's no logic here. 
she couldn't pronounce Edward and uh, called me Avi and that somehow sounded like Avi or something and became a family name and et cetera and then expanded beyond that. So that's where that name comes from. Now, why not the last name? Um, at some point, uh, I have mentioned this twin sister. Um, so we went to school together, a local public school in Brooklyn, New York. And at some point, my parents uh, must have gathered that I was not doing very well in school. And uh, they had me tested. Uh, important key to this story, this is the 1940s. We have much more knowledge of these things today. So they had me tested. And um, what they discovered was that I uh, am what's called dysgraphic. Now, you've heard, most people have heard of dyslexic, which means has problems reading. I have problems writing. Letter reversals, <clears throat> world's worst speller. I have a trophy to prove it. But uh, <laughs> anyway, dysgraphic. Letter reversals, uh, bad, pretty bad. And so I, I get through school and uh, my mother had a, a, arranged uh, that I was in the same class with my sister so that she could cover for me, I believe. She never said that, but I think so. Anyway, then we go to high school. She goes to one high school. I go to another. And <clears throat> in the first high school uh, goes in New York City, my first report card comes home and I have failed every subject. And my parents pluck me out and send me to a very small private school in New York City. At the end of the second year, the English teacher calls my parents up and says that Avi is the worst student he's ever had. And um, he has to have tutoring. And that summer I spent a lot of time with a tutor. Uh, but she was a wonderful teacher and she was the one who really got me interested in writing. Now, the key to all this is my parents had discovered that I was dysgraphic, but told no one, told no one, and uh, much less me. I didn't know it. They didn't tell you? No, no. I mean, this is 1940s. I think they were embarrassed or whatever. I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, they've, they've moved on, passed on, so I, don't, I don't, can't answer these questions. Um, but the point is that... Uh, by this time, I'm interested in writing, and uh, so when I'm a senior in high school, I decide to become a writer, and I tell my parents I'm going to be a writer, and they're horrified, not because they think writing is bad, but they think my writing is bad, and no parent wants their child to set themselves up for failure, right? But they don't tell me. They don't tell me why. So this makes me very angry and so forth. So later on, when I have my first book published, I don't put their name on my books, thereby just Avi, which is a name my sister gave me. And I leave off their name. Do you find, and I'm, you know, obviously you, you found all sorts of motivations to keep writing among them, taking wonderful trips, paying the mortgage, all of that good stuff. But did that leave you with a hunger to write well, almost out of, not, not spite, maybe is not the right word, but 
Well, I loved to read as a kid. I was a reader. Uh, not coincidentally, my twin sister is a writer as well. So clearly there was an environment that promoted this. Um, but, what, you know, one of the qualities that we, uh, as parents, you're a parent, you alluded to that, uh, is that uh, stubbornness is a quality that can be a pain in the neck, but it also has certain virtues. Stubbornness in the sense, I'm going to do it. I don't care what people say. I'm going to be a baseball player. Or I'm going to be a writer, whatever, right? I don't care. And at a certain point, I was, I stopped listening to the criticism. I was going to just do it. And I don't discover that I'm disc this graphic until I'm in my 40s. And it was a revelation. It, it, it was like uh, 10 pounds were taken off each shoulder. It was a, and then when I had a computer for the first time with a spell checker, one of the great moments of my life. <laughs> I could have given a Nobel Prize to the guy who invented the spell checker right then and there. <laughs> anyway, so that's an important part of who I am. And I, I, you know, we talk about all this rewriting I do. I, I think part of that rewriting comes out of that dysgraphia, trying to get it right. Here's a question that I had on my list originally, and I kind of chickened out because <laughs> I didn't know how personal uh, the response might be for you. Sure. So at what point then, with that as your background, with these incredibly discouraging things that happened to you along the way, I hope that English teacher that said you were her worst student uh, saw that you, you, you three Newbery honors. What did I you know? <laughs> um, but uh, at what point... Did you start to think, oh, well, despite those early uh, setbacks, I am a writer. I can do this and do it well. Well, <clears throat> I told you about how discouraging my parents were. But somewhere along the line, as a young man still in college, I made friends with uh, a few adult writers who were wonderfully encouraging to me for reasons I don't know. One of my favorite stories of this was this guy. He was actually a, uh, he was a folk singer, a guy named Lee Hayes. You ever hear of a group called the Weavers singing? Sure. He was the base of, of the Weavers. Anyway, he was a family friend and I took a liking to him and he to me. And he was also a writer. And, um, I once came back from college and I said, I mean, this is what you do if you're 17. You hand a pile of stuff to your mentor and say, Lee, could you read this and tell me what you think? I mean, <laughs> terribly imposing, but he says, well, come back in a week. I come back in a week. Did he read all the stuff? I hope not. But I said, well, Lee, what do you think? Well, he says in this wonderful bass voice, well, Avi, it takes a heap of manure to make a flower grow. <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful expression, right? <laughs> and I understood what he was saying, and I accepted it. I wasn't offended. I suppose if he said, 
in more vernacular language, uh, I could have been offended, but I wasn't. And he's right. Of course he's right. And so I had these adults who were writers, a couple of them, two, three of them, who were very encouraging to me. I don't know why, I really don't. Uh, but it made all the difference in the world, all the difference. Okay, must have seen something in you that thought that this time I'm putting in this effort's not going to fall on deaf ears. I agree. I agree. But I don't know what that was. Maybe I was an interesting person. Maybe I talked, writer talk. I, I have no idea, you know, but I was 16, 17, 18 years old. And they somehow got me to think that they took me seriously. And I think when you're a young writer, if someone takes you seriously, you can be told anything. It takes a heap of manure to make a flower grow and not be offended and being and react as if, well, that's good advice. That's good advice. So it took there. me a while to get there. I cost myself a lot of growth that I could have got to sooner had I have taken a chip off my shoulder <laughs> in my early years. Precisely, precisely. So, I, you know, I, I tried to be very supportive to young writers or would-be writers because it's hard. It's hard. Writing is very, very hard. And, you know, we, we of us who are teachers, who are successful at it, um, young people are often told by teachers with the best of intentions, oh, you can do it. It's not that hard. It is hard to write well. It's very hard to write very well. Very few of us achieve that. And it's important to tell young people that it is hard, but you can do it, but no, it's a struggle. It's not easy. It's not easy. And uh, it's one of the things I try to tell. You ask me talking to kids. I always begin by saying writing is very hard. It's very hard for me. And it's hard for you. And instead of feeling discouraged, uh, you should know that's exactly where you should be. If you write something and you think it's no good, that's a good sign because it's telling you you can make it better. If you think you've written something great, you're in trouble because it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not, right? You're a writer. You know that. You sit down and write something. It's no good right away. Maybe you're lucky and you write a paragraph that re really rings true. There's a wonderful... Johnson Boswell story that I love. Mr. Johnson, my friend has written this wonderful book. It's full of these wonderful passages, but no publisher will take it. What shall he do? Johnson, tell your friend to take out all the wonderful passages and he will have a good book. <laughs> good advice. It is, although I, I do fight, I'm, I'm, you know, well-versed and kill your darlings, find those things that you love most and, and get them out of there if they're not serving the story. But sometimes you do find something that you like from the first draft that really does work. And then you hear readers, I, I assume uh, that you, you had that experience that readers say, hey, the thing you liked, it was worth liking. We, we enjoyed it also. I, I don't think my readers, I don't recall readers pulling out a, paragraph and quoting it back to me. Maybe, I don't know. I don't recollect that. So what I do if there's a paragraph that I really love, 
is what you can do with computers. I pull it out and put it at the end of the book, and then I forget that I took it out. (laughs) (laughs) So it's still there if you should ever need it, but you're finding you just don't need it. (laughs) Being kind to myself, but I don't need it. So, anyway. Oh, that's uh, something I've started doing as well. I have a uh, separate folder just for the passages that I love. They're still there. I can go read them. <laughs> my, own, my, own, my own anthology of great writing, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. If you were me and you knew what I meant when I wrote that, you'd like it too. <laughs> yeah, it's relevant to what I'm writing. Yes. Okay. Cool. What else can I tell you? Oh, yeah, speaking of, uh, of chickening out, I know esteemed audience thinks I'm going to chicken out and not ask you the question that I ask everybody, but I'm not going to. Uh, I'm going to ask, um, Avi, have you ever seen a flying saucer, and do you believe in them? I want to know why you asked that question. Uh, because I have not seen one, but I think they're real, and even if they're not, so one, I, I do, I, I don't do overt political messages, but I would like more people to start asking this question. There's a whole lot of smoke. Let's see some fire. Um, and two, I like to know that even if there's nothing to it, I'm wrong, uh, and everyone who thinks they've seen one is wrong. I like to know who are the dreamers who believe and speculate. Do we need to pause briefly? No, no. Okay. Um, I haven't seen flying saucers, but I've seen ghosts. How's really? that? Yeah. So, just just good. Tell us about the the ghosts you've seen. <laughs> I uh, I decided. Okay, most of these stories come when you're a teenager. I mean, I don't think you see. Maybe you do. Anyway, the ghosts I've seen were when I was a teenager. I decided to visit an aunt and an uncle who lived in the country, who I was very fond of, and but I didn't want to tell him I was coming. So I hitchhiked across the state of Massachusetts to see them. And as I was approaching their house, uh, there was a sudden summer shower. I stood under a tree and I waited. Rain left, I went on, and as I was going on, uh, I passed a hill, and uh, at the top of the hill was a church, and on the side of the hill, oddly enough, was a cemetery. You don't usually see hills that have cemeteries, but this one did. And as I looked at the cemetery, I saw the figure of a human shape, and it was um, all misty. And it was just standing there by a tomb. And as I stared at it, it vanished. And I said, Go ahead. And I said, You don't believe in ghosts. So I walked up the hill and fixed my eyes on the tomb. And when I got there, it was an old gravestone covered with lichens. And being the rationalist, I said, well, lichens have sort of phosphorescent aspects to them. That's what it was. Being a complete rationalist, I walked away and told myself that I hadn't seen a ghost. And here I am 40 years later telling you I have seen a ghost. So (laughs) it was quite a sight, quite a sight. 
do you have a definitive answer for yourself? Was it a ghost or no? Or do you like not knowing for sure? I like to think it was. Maybe it gives me hope I'll return as a ghost. So I'd like that. Oh, maybe for a couple of years, hang around, see how everybody's doing. But then I would hope there's something to move on to. <laughs> well, that would be nice. But I think it would be fun to be a ghost. No? Um, that that just throws me a, a little bit because we've been talking in such practical terms. We covered a section where I asked you about woo and you you had a, a pat answer for that. Now we uh, we get here and a ghost. I would, never would have guessed. That's just fascinating. Oh, <laughs> wants to be fully understood, right? I agree. That's the other thing that I always say, that if you could tell me definitively, there aren't flying saucers, there never were, it was all just delusions. But I'm going to say, one, that, that was a pretty powerful delusion. Somebody was behind some of those. Uh, but two, don't tell me that. I don't want to live in that world where everything is flat and there isn't something more that maybe could come into it. I'm convinced there's life beyond this world. The idea that this globe of ours, which we are so rapidly destroying, is the only place where there's life as we define it um, is um, highly vain and unlikely. But as I once heard Carl Sagan, the great astrophysicist, say, the great problem of discovering life in other worlds is recognizing that it is life. We have our own definition of life but the universe may hold other definitions of what life is. And I love that answer. Oh, I think just probability-wise, the, the odds that we're the only life and, and on a world teeming with life could be that in a dead universe makes no sense to me. Absolutely, I agree with you. Well, I tell you, I, I'm, I'm watching that clock. I always want to be respectful, responsible, and I've got a, a last question that I always try to end on. Because it's a good catch-all for all the things that I should have asked you and just didn't think of them in the moment that I'm kicking, I'm kicking myself later that why didn't you ask him this? Um, if there was one bit of advice you could go back and give yourself toward the start of your career or any time in your career when you would have most needed it that would have made the writer's life easier for you, that would have saved you a couple of bits of advice. If there was something that could have smoothed your path, that might smooth the path for any uh, authors listening, what would you tell yourself? That there is no smooth path. That there's no shortcuts. Um, cliche someone said to me the other day, there are no elevators in life. You have to take the stairway. And um, writing is something that's learned, and it learns only by doing it. And some people may learn faster than others. Uh, I was slow. And um, I don't think there's anything that would have sped it up in any way whatsoever. Um, I think... Maybe the only advice, because it's based on what I did, if I hadn't had kids of my own, I probably would not have written books for kids. So my advice is have kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> but if you have kids, it's very hard to be a writer because you have to take care of them. So 
expensive. Well, the uh, thing I find amusing is I've never been as good a parent as the parent I was before I had one because I had all these ideas of who a parent should be, which is why when you were telling me about your parents' actions as a parent now, I'm starting to think, well, what were the motivations? There was probably still some caring and some loving there that just went off a little bit. <laughs> well, let me add to that story. Okay, I, one of my sons, um, as he was growing up, I realized that he was dysgraphic as well. And I was not going to do what my parents did. I told him, hey, Kevin, you have what I have. We're both dysgraphic. I typed his papers. I talked to him. I talked to his teachers. He knew it all. And as he grew older, I realized he was also a good writer. And I said to him once in high school, you know, you're a good writer. You're much better than I was at your age. You could be a writer. And he says, I can't be. Why? I have a disability. So who did the right thing, my parents or did I? And I love that you still don't, doesn't, don't appear to have an answer to that. I don't think there is. Right? We're not going to find a better note to end on. That <laughs> This has been incredible. I'm so glad that you made the time for this and, and that this is going to go out to, 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 to the world uh, to be shared. Where uh, can all the esteemed audience members listening uh, find out more about you uh, and, and learn more about Avi? Well, I have a website. If I knew what it was, I'd tell you what it's. <laughs> <laughs> I'll link to it in the show notes. <laughs> Something with my name in it. Anyway, thank you. Enjoy the conversation. And uh, always love to meet folks and hear from folks who listen to what I say and like it, dislike it, find it interesting. But most of all, I hope they enjoy my books. Thank you. I'm going to go back and listen to this multiple times because I know there are lots of things that I'm going to pick up the second, third, and fourth time um, that's, uh, that's going to be inspirational. Uh, Avi, I always ask our guests to sign us off because I've, I've read that uh, professional-type podcasts have sign-off phrases. So our sign-off phrase is hi-ya and what have you. Uh, will you sign us off? I like what Edward Morrow used to say. Good night and good luck. How's that? Perfect. <laughs>